Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on patreon.com. Bridget Engel and Lauren Gilchrist. Thank you both so, so much for being a part of making the show. For those of you who don't know, Patreon.com is a really great site where you can go online and support artists, you know, illustrators, filmmakers, whoever, anyone who you appreciate the work that they do. You can go on and support their work for even like a dollar a month. And really, every dollar goes a long way. So if you'd like to support Sleepy on Patreon, if the show works for you and you want to give back to it, you can go to patreon.com slash sleepyradio and donate one, two, or five dollars a month. Five dollars a month gets you access to a special Patreon poetry feed uh, where I send you poetry readings directly to your inbox uh, twice a month just for donating. And if you want to hear what that sounds like, you can go to episode 26 of this podcast where I read Walt Whitman, Leaves of Grass. And you'll get your name read on the show uh, the following week so you can be emblazoned on the halls of the Sleepy Podcast forevermore. Thank you. And as always, the music that you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski and the cover art for Sleepy was done by Gracie Kanan. Tonight, I thought I'd read a book that is pretty synonymous with adventure and um, kind of fantasy. It's a book that has inspired so, so many other books and movies and artwork, and I have never read it before, so I'm very excited to dive into it. It's Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe. So, get real comfortable, fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Close your eyes and let me read to you. The Life and Adventures of Robinson Crusoe I was born in the year 1632, in the city of York, of a good family, though not of that country. My father being a foreigner, of Bremen, who settled first at Hull. He got a good estate by merchandise, and leaving off his trade lived afterward at York, 
from whence he had married my mother, whose relations were named Robinson, a very good family in that country, and from whom I was called Robinson Crutzener. But, by the usual corruption of words in England, we are now called, nay, we call ourselves, and write our name, Crusoe, and so my companions always called me. I had two elder brothers, one of which was lieutenant colonel to the English regiment of foot in Flanders, formerly commanded by the famous Colonel Lockhart, and was killed at the battle near Dunkirk against the Spaniards. What became of my second brother, I never knew any more than my father or mother did know what was to become of me. Being the third son of the family, and not bred to any trade, my head began to be filled very early with rambling thoughts. My father, who was very ancient, had given me a competent share of learning as far as house education and a country-free school generally does, and designed me for the law. But I would be satisfied with nothing but going to sea. And my inclination to this led me so strongly against the will, nay, the commands of my father, and against all entreaties and persuasions of my mother and other friends, that there seemed to be something fatal in that propension of nature tending directly to the life of misery which was to befall me. My father, a wise and grave man, gave me serious and excellent counsel against what he foresaw was my design. He called me one morning to his chamber, where he was confined by the gout, and expostulated very warmly with me upon this subject. He asked me what reasons more than a mere wandering inclination I had for leaving my father's house and my native country, where I might be well introduced and had a prospect of raising my fortune by application and industry with a life of ease and pleasure. He told me it was for men of desperate fortunes on one hand, or of aspiring, superior fortunes on the other, who went abroad upon adventures to rise by enterprise and make themselves famous in undertakings of a nature out of the common road. That these things were all either too far above me or too far below me. That mine was the middle state, or what might be called the upper station of low life, which he had found by long experience was the best state of the world and the most suited to human happiness, not exposed to the miseries and hardships, the labor and the sufferings of the mechanic part of mankind, and not embarrassed with the pride, luxury, ambition, and envy of the upper part of mankind. He told me I might judge of the happiness of this state by this one thing, viz., that this was the state of life which all other people envied, that kings have frequently lamented the miserable consequences of being born to great things, and wish they had been placed in the middle of the two extremes, between the mean and the great, that the wise man gave his testimony to this as the just standard of true felicity. Then he prayed to have neither poverty or riches. He bid me observe it, and 
I should always find that the calamities of life were shared among the upper and lower part of mankind, but that the middle station had the fewest disasters and was not exposed to so many vicissitudes as the higher or lower part of mankind. Nay, they were not subjected to so many distempers and uneasiness either of body or mind as those were who by vicious living luxury and extravagancies on one hand or by hard labor want of necessaries and mean or insufficient diet on the other hand bring distempers upon themselves by the natural consequences of their way of living that the middle station of life was calculated for all kind of virtues and all kind of enjoyments, that peace and plenty were the handmaids of a middle fortune, that temperance, moderation, quietness, health, society, all agreeable diversions and all desirable pleasures were the blessings attending the middle station of life, that this way men went silently and smoothly through the world and comfortably out of it, not embarrassed with the labors of the hands or of the head, not sold to the life of slavery for daily bread, or harassed with perplexed circumstances which rob the soul of peace and the body of rest, not enraged with the passion of envy or secret burning lust of ambition for great things, but in easy circumstances, sliding gently through the world, and sensibly tasting the sweets of living without the bitter feeling that they are happy and learning by every day's experience to know it more sensibly. After this, he pressed me earnestly in the most affectionate manner not to play with the young man, not to precipitate myself into miseries which nature and station of life I was born in seemed to have provided against. I was under no necessity of seeking my bread, not that he would do well for me, and endeavored to enter me fairly into the station of life which he had been recommending to me, and that, if I was not very easy and happy in the world, it may be my mere fate or fault that must hinder it, and that he should have nothing to answer for having thus discharged his duty and warning me against the measures which he knew would be my hurt. In a word, that as he would do very kind things for me if I would stay and settle at home as he directed, so he would not have so much hand in my misfortunes as to give me any encouragement to go away. And to close all, he told me I had my elder brother for an example, to whom he had used the same earnest persuasions to keep him from going into the low country wars, but could not prevail, his young desires prompting him to run to the army where he was killed, and though he said he would not cease to pray for me, yet he would venture to say to me that if I did take this foolish step, God would not bless me and I would have the leisure hereafter to reflect upon, having neglected his counsel when there might be none to assist in my recovery. I observe in this last part of discourse 
which was truly prophetic, though I suppose my father did not know it to be so himself. I say, I observed the tears run down his face very plentifully, and especially when he spoke of my brother, who was killed, and that when he spoke of having leisure to repent and none to assist me, he was so moved that he broke off the discourse and told me his heart was so full he could say no more to me. I was sincerely affected with this discourse, as indeed who could be otherwise, and I resolved not to think of going abroad any more, but to settle at home according to my father's desire. But alas, a few days wore it all off, and in short, to prevent any of my father's further importunities, and a few weeks after I resolved to run quite away from him. However, I did not act so hastily, neither as my first heat of resolution prompted. But I took my mother, at a time when I thought her a little pleasanter than ordinary, and told her that my thoughts were so entirely bent upon seeing the world, I should never settle to anything with resolution enough to go through with it. And my father had better give me his consent than force me to go without it. That I was now eighteen years old, which was too late to go apprentice to a trade or clerk to an attorney. That I was sure if I did, I should never serve out my time, and I should certainly run away from my master before the time was out and go to sea. And if she would speak to my father to let me go but one voyage abroad, if I came home again and did not make it, I would go no more. And I would promise by double diligence to recover that time that I had lost. This put my mother into a great passion. She told me she knew it would be no purpose to speak to my father upon any such subject, that he knew too well what was my interest to give his consent to anything so much for my hurt, and that she wondered how I could think of anything after such a discourse as I had with my father, and such kind and tender expressions as she knew my father had used to me, and that in short, if I would ruin myself, there was no help for me but I might depend I should never have their consent to it. That her part, she would not have so much hand in my destruction, and I should never have to say that my mother was willing when my father was not. Though my mother refused to move to my father, yet as I have heard it afterwards, she reported all the discourse to him, and that my father after showing a great concern at it, said to her with a sigh, that boy might be happy if he would stay at home, but if he goes abroad, he will be the miserablest wretch that was ever born. I can give no consent to it. It was not till almost a year after this that I broke loose, though in the meantime, I continued obstinately deaf to all the proposals of settling to business. And frequently, 
expostulating with my father and mother about their being so positively determined against what they knew my inclinations prompted me to. But being one day at Hull, where I went casually and without any purpose of making an elopement that time, but I say, being there, and one of my companions being going by sea to London in his father's ship and prompting me to go with them, with the common allurement of seafaring men, viz., that it should cost me nothing for my passage. I consulted neither mother or father any more, nor so much as sent them word of it, believing them to hear of it as they might, without asking God's blessing, or my father's, without any consideration of circumstances or consequences, and in an ill hour, God knows, on the 1st of September, 1651, I went on board a ship bound for London. Never any young adventurer's misfortunes, I believe, began sooner or continued longer than mine. The ship was no sooner gotten out of the Humber, but the wind began to blow, and the winds to rise in the most frightful manner. And, as I had never been to sea before, I was most inexpressibly sick in body and terrified in my mind. I began now seriously to reflect upon what I had done and how justly I was overtaken by the judgment of heaven for my wicked leaving of my father's house and abandoning my duty. All the good counsel of my parents, my father's tears, and my mother's entreaties came now fresh into my mind, and my conscience, which was not yet to come, to the pitch of hardness to which it has been since, reproached me with the contempt of advice and the breach of my duty to God and my father. All this while the storm increased, and the sea, which I had never been upon before, went very high, though nothing like I had seen many times since. No, nor like what I saw a few days after. But it was enough to affect me then. I was but a young sailor, and had never known anything of the matter. I expected every wave would have swallowed us up, and that every time the ship fell down, as I thought, in the trough of the hollow of the sea, we should never rise more. And in this agony of mind, I made many vows and resolutions, that if it would please God here to spare my life this one voyage, if I ever got once my foot upon dry land again, I would go directly home to my father, and never set it into a ship again while I lived that I would take his advice and never run myself into such miseries as these any more. Now I saw plainly the goodness of his observations about the middle station of life, how easy, how comfortably he had lived all his days, and never had been exposed to the tempest at sea or the troubles on shore. There was all that I would, like a true repenting prodigal, go home to my father. These wise and sober thoughts continued all the while the storm continued, and indeed some time after, 
but the next day the wind was abated and the sea calmer. I began to be a little inured to it. However, I was very grave for all that day, being also a little seasick still. But towards night, the weather cleared up, the wind was quite over, and a charming fine evening followed. The sun went down perfectly clear, and rose the next morning in having little or no wind and a smooth sea, the sun shining upon it. The sight was, as I thought, the most delightful that I ever saw. I had slept well in the night, and was now no more seasick, but very cheerful, looking with wonder upon the sea that was so rough and terrible the day before, and could be so calm and pleasant in so little time after. And now, at least my good resolutions should continue. My companion, who would indeed entice me away, comes to me. Well, Bob, says he, clapping me on the shoulder. How do you do after it? I warrant you were frightened. Weren't you, last night, when it blew but a capful of wind? A capful, do you call it, said I. T'was a terrible storm. A storm, you fool you, replies he. Do you call that a storm? Why, it was nothing at all. Give us but a good ship and sea room, and we think nothing of such a squall of wind as that. But you're but a fresh water sailor, Bob. Come, let us make a bowl of punch, and we'll forget all that. You see what charming weather it is now. To make sure this sad part of my story, we went the old way, of all sailors. The punch was made, and I was made drunk with it. And in one night's wickedness, I had drowned all my repentance, all my reflections upon my past conduct, and all my resolutions for my future. In a word, as the sea was returned to its smoothness of surface, and settled calmness by the abatement of the storm, so the hurry of my thoughts being over my fears and apprehensions of being swallowed up by the sea being forgotten and the current of my former desires returned. I entirely forgot the vows and promises that I made in my distress. I found indeed some intervals of reflection and the serious thoughts did as it were endeavor to return again sometimes. But I shook them off and roused myself from them, as it were from a distemper, and applying myself to drink and company, soon mastered the return of those fits, for so I called them, and I had in five or six days got as complete victory over conscience as any young fellow that resolved not to be troubled by it could desire. But I was to have another trial for it still, and providence as in such cases it generally does, resolve to leave me entirely without excuse. For if I would not take this for a deliverance, the next was to be such a one as worst and most hardened wretch among us would confess both the danger and the mercy. The sixth day of our being at sea, we came into Yarmouth Roads, the wind having been contrary 
and the weather calm. We had made but little way since the storm. Here we obliged to come to an anchor, and here we lay, the wind continuing contrary, viz, at southwest, for seven or eight days, during which a great many ships from Newcastle came into the same roads as the common harbor, where the ships might wait for a wind for the river. We had not, however, ridden here so long, but should have tied it up to the river, but that wind blew too fresh, and after we had lain for four or five days, blew very hard. However, the roads being reckoned as good as a harbor, the anchorage good, and our ground tackle very strong, our men were unconcerned, and not in the least bit apprehensive of danger, but spent the time in the rest and mirth after the manner of the sea. But the eighth day in the morning, the wind increased, and we all had hands to work to strike our top masts and make everything snug and close, that the ship might ride as easily as possible. By noon the sea went very high indeed, and our ship rid four castle in, shipped several seas, and we thought once or twice our anchor had come home, upon which our master ordered out the sheet anchor. So, that we rode with two anchors ahead, and the cables vared out to the bitter end. By this time, it blew a terrible storm indeed, and now I began to see the terror and amazement in the faces, even in the seamen themselves. The master, though vigilant to the business of preserving the ship, yet as he went in and out of his cabin by me, I could hear him softly, to himself say several times, Lord, be merciful to us. We shall be all lost. We shall be all undone, and the like. During these first hurries, I was stupid, lying still in my cabin, which was in the steerage, and could not describe my temper. I could ill reassume my first penitence, which I had so apparently trampled upon and hardened myself against. I thought the bitterness of death had been past, and that this would be nothing too like the first. But when the master himself came by me, as I said just now, and said we should all be lost, I was dreadfully frightened. I got up out of my cabin and looked out, but such a dismal sight I never saw. The sea went mountains high and broke upon us every three or four minutes. When I could look about, I could see nothing but distress round us. Two ships rid near us, we found had cut their masts by the board, being deep loaden, and our men cried out that a ship which rid a mile ahead of us was foundered. Two more ships, being driven from their anchors, were run out of the roads to sea at all adventures, and with not a mast standing. The light ships fared the best, as not so much laboring in the sea, but two or three of them drove and came close by us, running away with their only spirit sail out before the wind. Towards evening the mate 
and Boatswain begged the master for our ship to let them cut away our foremast, which he was very unwilling to. But the Boatswain protesting to him that if he did not, the ship would founder, he consented. And when they had cut away the foremast, the mainmast stood so loose and shook the ship so much that they were obliged to cut her away also and make a clear deck. Anyone may judge what a condition I must be in at all this, who was but a young sailor, and who had been in such a fright before at but a little. But if I can express at this distance the thoughts I had about me at the time, I was in tenfold more horror of mind upon the account of my former convictions, and the having returned from them to the resolutions I had wickedly taken at first, than I was at death itself, and these added to the terror of the storm, put me into such a condition that I can by no words describe it, but the worst was not come yet. The storm continued with such fury that the seamen themselves acknowledged they had never known it worse. We had a good ship, but she was deep-loaded and wallowed in the sea, that the seamen every now and then cried out she would founder. It was my advantage in one respect that I did not know what they meant by founder until I inquired. However, the storm was so violent that I saw what is not often seen. The master, the boatswain, and some others more sensible than the rest at their prayers and expecting every moment when the ship would go to the bottom. In the middle of the night, and under all the rest of our distresses, one of the men, who had been down on purpose to see, cried out we had sprung a leak. Another said there was four foot water in the hold. Then, all hands were called to the pump. At that very word, my heart, as I thought, died within me, and I fell backwards upon the side of my bed where I sat, into the cabin. However, the men roused me and told me that I that was able to do nothing before was as well able to pump as another, at which I stirred up and went to the pump and worked very heartily. While this was doing, the master, seeing some light colliers, who, not able to ride out of the storm, were obliged to slip and run away to sea and would come near us order to fire a gun as a signal of distress. I knew nothing what that meant, was so surprised that I thought the ship had broke, or some dreadful thing had happened. In a word, I was so surprised that I fell down in a swoon, as this was a time when everybody had his own life to think of. Nobody minded me, or what was become of me, but another man stepped to the pump, and thrusting me aside with his foot, let me lie, thinking I had been dead. It was a great while before I came to myself. We worked on, but the water increasing in the hold, it was apparent that the ship would founder. And though the storm began to abate a little, yet as it is not possible, she could swim till we might turn to a port. 
so the master continued firing guns for help, and a light ship who had ridded out just ahead of us ventured a boat out to help us. It was with the utmost hazard the boat came near us, but it was impossible for us to get on board, or for the boat to lie near the ship's side, till at last the men rowing very heartily and venturing their lives to save ours. Our men cast them a rope over the stern with a buoy to it, and then veered it out at great length, which they after great labor and hazard took hold of, and we hauled them closer around the stern and got all into their boat. It was to no purpose for them or us after we were in the boat to think of reaching to their own ship. So all agreed to let her drive and only to pull her inwards towards the shore as much as we could. And our master promised them that if the boat was staved upon shore he would make it good to their master. So partly rowing and partly driving our boat went away to the northward sloping towards the shore, almost as far as the Winterton Ness. We were not much more than a quarter of an hour out from the ship, but we saw her sink, and then I understood for the first time that was meant by a ship foundering to sea. I must acknowledge I had hardly eyes to look up when the seaman told me she was sinking, for from that moment they rather put me in the boat than I might be said to go in. My heart was as it were dead within me, partly with fright, partly with horror of mind, and the thoughts of what was yet before me. While we were in this condition, the men yet laboring at the oar to bring the boat near the shore, we could see when our boat mounting the waves, we were able to see the shore, a great many people running along the shore to assist us when we would come near but we made but slow away towards the shore, nor were able to reach the shore, though being past the lighthouse at Winterton, the shore falls off to the westward towards Cromer, and so the land broke off little, the violence of the wind. Here we got in, and though not with much difficulty, got all safe on shore, and walked afterwards on foot to Yarmouth, where, as unfortunate men, we were used with great humanity as well by the magistrates of the town, who assigned us good quarters, as by particular merchants and owners of ships, and had money given us sufficient to carry us either to London or back to Hull, as we thought fit. Had I now had the sense to have gone back to Hull, and have gone home, I had been happy, and my father, an emblem of our blessed Savior's parable, had even killed a fatted calf for me, for hearing the ship I went away in was cast away in Yarmouth Road. It was a great while before he had any assurance that I was not drowned. But my ill fate pushed me on, now with obstinacy that nothing could resist. And though I had several times loud calls from my reason and my more composed judgment to go home, yet I had no power to do it. I know not what to call this, nor will I urge, that is, a secret, overruling decree that hurries us on the instruments of our own destruction, even though it be before us, and that we rush upon it with our eyes open, 
Certainly, nothing but some such decreed and unavoidable misery attending, in which it was impossible for me to escape, could have pushed me forward against the calm reasonings and persuasions of my most tired thoughts, and against two such visible instructions as I had met with my first attempt. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.